0: Today's broadcast originally aired on October 11th, 2023.
1: What this will mean for our membership cannot be understated. He means it cannot be overstated. Then again, I could care less. Well, I don't know why
2: I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling there's something
1: right. No it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Clowns
2: to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you.
1: I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lanchester, Pennsylvania, on W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ concord new hampshire's wnhn fayetteville Arkansas's kpsq in seattle on kodx Janesville, wisconsin's wadr and minneapolis st paul's am 950 ktnf we also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the progressive voices channel netroots radio radio for humans nicole sandler.com Hurry back, Nicole. Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from brandblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. We will be uh, joined by a guest today momentarily to discuss what I see As some pretty big news coming out of the United Auto Workers strike, which could use, uh, I think, some more attention given uh, all of the, well, as this horrific attack by Hamas against Israel last weekend. And now Israel's relentless response is obviously taking up most of the airtime, certainly on cable news right now. But very quickly, uh, a few other items here. Uh, First, at the end of yesterday's program, news had just broken uh, that Hurricane Lydia off the Pacific coast of Mexico had suddenly spun up to a major Category 3 storm with 125 mile-per-hour winds just before making landfall, which Desi, hi Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, you had noted uh, that we have been seeing a lot of that lately. Oh, yes. These storms spinning up quickly from tropical storms into major hurricanes. Yes,
0: called rapid intensification.
1: That And that due to the warm waters? Of the ocean these days?
0: Yes, not just these days. The entire year, the oceans around the world have been at record warm temperatures, which provides rocket fuel for storms.
1: Well, no sooner did we get off the air before that storm that had suddenly become a major storm at a Category 3. Suddenly, it got even worse before it made landfall. Uh, As an extremely dangerous, as the National Hurricane Center uh, described it, Category 4 Storm on Tuesday evening with winds of 140 miles per hour, uh, making landfall near Mexico's Pacific Coast resort of Puerto Puerto Vallarta. Now, uh, am I crazy, or didn't hurricanes used to actually weaken before they would make landfall rather than what they seem to do now, which is suddenly. Up speed just before landfall.
0: Well, you may be crazy, but you are not wrong uh-huh. that it used to be that, yes, hurricanes would slow down and yeah. lose strength as they approached land. That's not how things work anymore. Now the oceans are so warm that it does let uh, hurricanes continue to intensify all the way up to landfall. I mean, Lydia intensified with breakneck speed. It went from a Category 1 to a Category 4 storm in just nine and a half hours.
1: We have, and, you know, we have seen this. Yeah, Yeah. we haven't
0: seen that, but also, remember, the poor folks in Puerto Vallarta did not have any warning, hardly at all, that they were going to actually be hit with a Category 4. Category
1: 4, I know, and, and, uh, I mean, it does not seem that long ago that we could rely on, okay, it's a huge storm, it's terrible, but it will slow down before it makes landfall. It now seems to be doing the opposite. Right. Uh, In storm after storm, frankly, uh, the U.S. National Hurricane Center forecast rainfalls uh, totals of 4 to 8 inches with localized totals of 12 inches in some places. And, of course, that is going to be the case no matter what the uh, category is for the particular storm. It can have all of that moisture. Right. As of this morning, the Hurricane Center said that Lydia's winds were now down to 35 miles per hour as it dissipates uh, about 145 miles north-north-northeast of the city of Guadalajara, Mexico, which is the second largest city and the capital of the western state of Jalisco. Now, it's a good thing that uh, it, it landed where it did. It made landfall on a sparsely populated peninsula and then moved inland south of Puerto Vallarta. So luckily, it did not hit you know, Guadalajara which would been have been a major disaster. Yes. Nonetheless, several homes around the landfall had their uh, roofs blown off, trees were knocked down, killing at least one person so far. Uh, it remained a powerful hurricane even after moving over land with some highways blocked in the region. In 2015, Hurricane Patricia, a Category 5 storm, also made landfall on the same sparsely populated stretch of coastland coastline uh, between the resort of Puerto Vallarta and the major port of Manzanillo. The the storm uh, Lydia made landfall just one day after Tropical Storm Max hit the southern Pacific coast hundreds of miles away. But uh, it washed out parts of a coastal highway in the southern state of Guerrero. So two storms hitting the Pacific coast in Mexico over the same number of days. Uh, and spinning up to a category five, sorry four. we didn't- Category uh, four. four. You're right, don't want to make it worse than it was. <laughs> category four, uh, sorry that we got that wrong at the end of yesterday's show by saying category three and minutes later it becomes category four. Who yeah,
0: knows? but such is our climate changed world.
1: All right. um, On matters related somewhat to Israel today and a very rare example these days of the site still known as Twitter actually being uh, somewhat helpful uh, in countering misinformation, at least in this instance, at least when I went on to Twitter today. Dumb Donald Trump Jr., I guess uh, he's sort of hoping to counter his father, who has said virtually nothing about the appalling attack by Hamas against Israel and, by the way, the breach of Israel's vaunted border wall fencing uh, in order to to do it. Uh, Don Jr. tweeted, quote, Why hasn't Biden cut off the $6 billion scheduled to be released to Iran yet? How on earth could that still be on the table? He could do it with one phone call in 10 seconds, but he hasn't. Why? Uh, Now, Lil Donnie is trying to suggest here that the Hamas attack on Israel was somehow in cahoots with Iran, which supports Hamas. Though, in fact, only Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal at this point has reported uh, that there is any connection to Iran right now in this attack. There's no confirmed evidence tying it to uh, tying uh, Iran to the attack in Israel, even if many on the right would like it to be so. Just as they wanted it to be so that Iraq was somehow involved in the attack by a bunch of Saudis on 9-11. So do beware of those folks hoping to expand this war into Iran, at least without any additional evidence to support the claims they're making. Yeah, we've been here before. But in this case, uh, with uh, Don Jr.'s tweet, misleading tweet, uh, Twitter's so-called community notes service was there with a reply, at least when I saw his tweet. It was tacked on uh, as a comment to uh, correctly note, quote, Five detained U.S. citizens were exchanged for allowing Iran to access $6 billion of its own funds that had been frozen. In fact, it was a payment, I believe, from South Korea for oil to Iran before sanctions were placed on them. That money, Community Notes continues, can only be spent on humanitarian aid. Meanwhile, the money, uh, Community Notes reports, is in Qatari banks with their oversight. Iran has not accessed any of the money at this time, according to the U.S. So some helpful context there. Um, tacked on to Don Jr.'s misleading tweet. And uh, and by the way, the community notes includes a number of uh, links to a number of stories at media outlets, legitimate ones explaining what Don Jr. either doesn't know or doesn't care to know in, again, a rare example of Twitter these days uh, since it's purchased by Elon Musk actually helping to counter misinformation. Since it's purchase by Musk, Twitter has done away with most of its fact checkers. It's allowed more and more misinformation and disinformation and propaganda to be spread like wildfire across the platform. It has become even worse, frankly, than it already was back when it did have safety monitors to remove the worst of the disinformation that was posted to the social media site. Much of the fact checking now is left to so-called Community notes, which is based on other users' responses, uh, volunteers' responses to various tweets. Though, as NBC News' Ben Goggin reports today, the community fact checking feature that Elon Musk has touted as a way to fight false and misleading information on X, which it's now called, is struggling to keep up with a flood of content related to the Israel-Hamas war. The system, Community Notes, relies on approved volunteers to suggest notes to be appended to posts. Those posts are then voted on by other volunteers and eventually published after they reach a certain threshold of votes from, quote, people with different points of view, according to X. X. An approved Community Notes member, however, gave NBC News access to the feature's volunteer interface, which showed that many false posts with hundreds of thousands of views had no notes appended to them, while other notes sat unapproved for hours and sometimes days on posts that accrued tens of thousands of views in the meantime. NBC News focused on two prominent pieces of Israel Hamas misinformation that have already been debunked, a fake White House news release that was posted to X claiming that Biden had uh, that the Biden administration had granted Israel 8 billion dollars in emergency aid or on that story uh, in a moment, and another uh, one they focused on, false reports that an Orthodox church in Gaza was destroyed. Only 8% of 120 posts related to those stories had published community notes. About two-thirds of the top posts that NBC reviewed had no proposed or published community notes on them. The findings echo what a community notes volunteer said was uh, the service's lack of response to efforts to debunk misleading posts. They don't care. Elon Musk does not care. Quote, all weekend, we were furiously vetting, writing and approving community notes on hundreds of posts, which were demonstrably fake news, said Kim Picaccio, a community notes volunteer on Instagram's Threads. (sighs) a now-competing service. She said it took two-plus days for the backroom to press whatever button to finally make all of our warnings publicly viewable. By that time, dot, 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 she said, you know the rest of that sentence. Mark Cuban, billionaire, wrote on threads, Twitter is a cesspool of misinformation on Israel and Gaza. Situation has apparently become so dire that Musk, who has been vocally outspoken about his distaste for content moderation, urged users to quote, please try to stay as close to the truth as possible. That should that should take care of it, right? That should fix it. The uh, site now say they are working to uh, accelerate the Community Notes program. Musk took control of X, which was then called Twitter, almost exactly one year ago. He called himself a, quote, free speech absolutist. Since then, the company has cut many of its moderation resources, including much of its disinformation and election integrity team, which I guess uh, should be no problem at all heading into another presidential election year. Musk has touted community notes as a solution to more traditional methods of platform moderation. (laughs) On March 16, he wrote, quote, best way to fight misinformation is to respond with accurate information, not censorship. And on April 12, he wrote that the word misinformation is indeed the Trojan horse for censorship. But over the weekend, some users became exasperated with the amount of fake news on the platform. One of them, political scientist Ian Bremmer, wrote, quote, The level of disinformation on Israel-Hamas war being algorithmically promoted on Twitter is like a- unlike anything I've ever been exposed to in my career as a political scientist. But now, with uh, Musk's replacement of the blue check verified system where we used to be able to at least have an idea of, you know, who was, for example, a legit journalist or a public official or an academic versus who was fake, well, now anyone is simply allowed to pay eight bucks a month for a blue check and Therefore, by the way, the Brad blog over at Twitter does not have a blue check anymore. And I ain't going to give my money to Musk for one if I can help it. Since he changed that system, it's become more difficult, if not impossible, to tell what is true and what is false. And it is much easier to spread lies and fabrications and propaganda on the sadly still powerful social media site which used to be incredibly useful at moments like this, when wars were breaking out and such. Thus, uh, Associated Press issues uh, fact checks now every now and again, uh, focused on widely spreading misinformation on social media. That's a service from AP that's now more valuable than ever. They reported last night that quote misinformation about the israel uh, Israel Hamas war is flooding social media, noting a flood of videos and photos purporting to show the conflict have made it difficult to sort fact from fiction. So they've responded to several of the uh, those uh, videos and and uh, Pieces of misinformation, which I think are worth noting briefly here in case you or someone you know tries to forward these various deceptive claims. Among the fabrications that users have shared are false claims that a top Israeli commander had been kidnapped They circulated a doctored White House memo purporting to show President Joe Biden announcing billions in aid for Israel. And they pushed old and unrelated videos of Russian President Vladimir Putin with inaccurate English captions. So just to step through one or two of those, uh, starting with a false claim about Joe Biden sending $8 billion to Israel. Which had been, by the way, corrected by a Community Notes user, but that correction was not approved by Twitter. So the fact check was actually sitting in the Community Notes system unpublished for at least 24 hours, according to NBC, while it was allowed to spread on the system like wildfire. So here is the, the claim. A memo shows that President Joe Biden just announced he is sending $8 billion in military aid to Israel. The facts? Well, an image of a memo being widely shared online was fabricated, and Biden has not made any such announcement, according to the White House. Social media users began sharing the altered image in the wake of Saturday's surprise attack on Israel by Hamas. It appears to show Biden authorizing Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to direct up to $8 billion in aid as Israel formally declared war on Sunday. Quote Breaking! Biden send, signs order to send $8 billion in military aid to Israel, wrote one user who shared the memo on X. New name for Twitter. But the widely shared memo is a fake. A White House spokesperson confirmed on Monday. The memo appears to be a doctored version of an order that Biden issued providing war assistance to Ukraine this summer. The real memo called for up to 400 million, not 8 billion. And it was for Ukraine, not for Israel, but for Ukraine in its ongoing war with invading Russian forces as opposed to Israel uh, and their uh, their war now against invading Hamas forces. But, of course, it would be very difficult for uh, for Joe Biden to be able to send $8 billion to Israel, given the fact that Congress is shut down and would need to approve such a thing. But they can't without a Speaker of the House and the uh, Republicans. I understand the Republicans held a secret vote among their favorite candidates, Joe Jordan and Steve Scalise, on Wednesday. Apparently Scalise won, but it was pretty close to (laughs) 50-50. So who knows how long it's going to take them to actually do an actual public vote, restore a Speaker of the House, so Congress can get on with the country's business. All right. One other claim here. Two videos show Russian President Vladimir Putin warning the U.S. to, quote, stay away from the latest Gaza war. The facts. Both videos circulating online are months old clips of Putin speaking about the Russian-Ukraine war, not the conflict in the Middle East, which have been miscaptioned in English. Both videos show Putin speaking in Russian with false English captions saying that he was warning the U.S. to refrain from helping the Jewish state. Quote, America wants to destroy Israel as we destroy Ukraine in past. The captions on one of the video falsely states, quote, I am warning America. Russia will help Palestine and America can do nothing. It's totally fake. A caption on another video of uh, Putin filmed in a different location similarly reads, I am warning America to stay away from Palestine-Israel war. But the two clips actually long predate the latest Israel-Hamas war and make no mention of Israel at all, which you wouldn't know unless you uh, spoke Russian, I guess. And uh, this apparently has been spreading like wildfire, Across social media, don't be fooled. The first video uh, actually shows Putin at a meeting in December of 2022. And the second is Putin speaking at a February 23 event marking the anniversary of World War II. Uh, The Soviet victory over Nazi German forces.
0: And there are other videos that are also being posted and circulating from disinformation artists that are video game footage that is being portrayed as being part of the conflict in Israel and Hamas, but they're not.
1: A Kremlin spokesperson told reporters on Monday that Russia is, quote, extremely concerned by the, quote, spiral of violence in Israel. And its deputy foreign minister and former ambassador to Israel and Egypt told a state news agency on Saturday that Moscow has been in touch with, quote, all parties of the conflict, including Arab countries, and was urging for, quote, an immediate ceasefire and peace, which is, of course, coming from Russia outrageously ironic, given their own brutal assault on their sovereign neighbors in Ukraine. Nonetheless, none of that makes the doctored captions in the videos of Putin any more accurate. So all I can say at this point is, you know, be careful out there.
0: Yeah, be careful what you share on uh, social media.
1: Yeah, be careful what you share, be careful what you read and believe to be the truth. The uh, changes of Twitter have have not made it any easier to tell the difference between the lies and the truth. And frankly, it was not all that easy before Elon Musk showed up. But as always, we will do our best here on the broadcast to try and clarify uh, the worst of the misinformation when needed because, of course, anti-union, anti-worker Elon Musk who was, at least until he blew his money on Twitter, he was believed to be the richest man on Earth, well, he is hoping that unpaid volunteers will take the place of Twitter's paid safety and fact-check teams, even at a time when the world really, really needs a reliable worldwide social network. Well, guess what? Twitter ain't it. No matter what you call it. Call it X, but it ain't it. All right, speaking of... Anti-labor, anti-union, Elon Musk. Uh, if, if things keep going as well for striking auto workers as they have so far, maybe it won't be long before workers at Musk's Tesla realize that, yeah, they should be paid much more and have much better benefits too. Let's take a quick break. It will be joined with an expert on labor and the United Auto Workers uh, Union and its strike to discuss a big breakthrough for at least workers at GM. When it comes to the production of electric vehicles, that's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an Encore presentation of the Bradcast. If you're selling your soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, well, nothing's gonna change if all you do is wish you could wake up and it not be true, join a union. Fight for better pay. You better join a union, brother. Organize today. Good advice. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. With everything that is going on right now, particularly in Israel and in Ukraine, et cetera, and with the cable news largely subsumed by the drums of foreign wars, I want to make sure some key developments here at home, and as my guest will explain momentarily, I think, some encouraging developments for both union workers and arguably for the environmental movement at the same time, I want to make sure that it doesn't All get lost amid all of the other news that we're necessarily being confronted with at the very same time. We discussed this a little bit at the end of our latest Green News report with Desi Doyen yesterday. But as our friends at the American Prospect described it, in a major announcement for the future of the transition to electric vehicles, General Motors late last week agreed to place workers at joint venture EV battery plants under the National Master Agreement with the United Auto Workers, as the UAW president, Sean Fain, announced in a live broadcast on Friday. GM has now agreed in
3: writing to place their electric battery manufacturing under
1: our National Master Agreement. We've been told for months that this is impossible. We've been told the EV future must be a race to the bottom. And now we've called their bluff. What this will mean for our membership cannot be understated. Now, I think what Fain meant to say there was that uh, this agreement for union workers and the future of American labor movement as a whole cannot be overstated. But hopefully you get his point. The landmark agreement, according to the prospect, would ensure that new hires building electric vehicle parts are included in the union, an outcome the automaker had sought to avoid as it has built new facilities in harder to organize states in the south. So this is a huge win for workers at one, at least, of the big three U.S. automakers, where the UAW is currently striking against all three of them in progressively larger and larger actions as negotiations continue with Detroit automakers GM, Ford and Stellantis. That's the company uh, formerly known as Fiat Chrysler particularly as labor leaders and experts and workers themselves believe that agreement with GM will now have to be mirrored at other at the other two uh, automaker shops. Said one striking worker at a Ford plant in Chicago, quote, environmentalists have been touting a just transition for a long time. But now we're putting the force of the union behind that just transition. He said he hoped to see similar concessions from Ford and Stellantis soon. In the near term, for example, the agreement by GM or with GM puts around 720 workers at Ultium Cells, a joint venture between GM and LG Energy Solution based in Lordstown, Ohio, into the GM Master Agreement. Those workers who overwhelmingly voted to unionize last December, Well, they recently won a tentative agreement to raise wages by 20%, but they have not completed a first contract. Well, now that contract will be whatever is bargained for in the master agreement. General Motors committing to the reclassification signals how the automaker has acknowledged EVs as a part of its core business, explained Bloomberg New Energy Finance analyst Corey Cantor. For a long time, charging networks and battery production were kept separate with lower paid employees for some reason. Now, Cantor said GM is conceding that, quote, the battery is a core part of the EV. You can't sell a gas car without its motor, which seems pretty obvious to me. But apparently it took this unprecedented action by workers walking off the job to make that a reality. When it comes to the people who build those cars and trucks, whether they are building engines for them or batteries for motors in electric cars and trucks. Until Friday, our friend Harold Meyerson notes at the prospect the U.S. auto companies were almost uniformly resisting the idea that their employees in the EV industry would receive wages and benefits comparable to those that UAW members had long received. Now, he notes, GM and almost surely Ford and Stellantis following in its wake will effectively ratify the UAW's agreement. That work in the new EV economy can provide the living standards that once enabled UAW members to thrive. That alone is a victory, but that victory for workers may be even broader than it appears, or as Fain noted, it cannot be understated. The UAW's tough bargaining strategy is working, argues Wayne State University's Merrick Masters in an article at The Conversation late last week. Under the deft leadership of its president, Sean Fain, and other uh, officials elected in March of 2023, he writes, the union has thrown the three companies off balance with a strike that began on September 15, the minute its prior contracts expired. As of last week, when Masters published his article, the number of UAW members on strike from their big three jobs stood at 25,000 after a gradual climb, meaning that now one in six of the union's nearly 150,000 workers were on the picket lines instead of going to work. As a labor and business scholar, Masters argues that the UAW's collective bargaining during this unprecedented action against all three of the major automakers at the same time for the first time in history has been successful, at least so far, thanks to Fain and his leadership team, Getting the upper hand via a three part strategy that Masters breaks down in his article and which seems to lay out a roadmap for how other union organizers in other industries might wish to take on major companies as the nation goes through its most recent and arguably long-overdue wave of strikes for better wages and working conditions in what UC Santa Barbara labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein described on this show a few weeks back as an exciting time for the modern American labor movement for the first time in decades after years of, quote, unions in the doldrums and management in the driver's seat. Is that finally now changing in the U.S.? If so, how and why? Joining us now is Dr. Merrick Masters, professor of business at the Mike Illich School of Business at Wayne State University in Michigan, where he has also served as director of the Labor at Wayne program. Professor Masters, thank you for joining us today on the broadcast, sir.
3: It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Uh, Before we uh, get to the uh, three part strategy that you detailed uh, as as being carried out by the UAW labor leaders, am I either over or understating the uh, the key victory won by the union in their agreement with GM that the batteries for the electric uh, vehicles will now be built by union labor?
3: Well, certainly on the surface, based on what we know about the agreement between GM and the UAW. It is what I would consider to be a monumental achievement on the part of the UAW. I don't think anyone, including myself, thought that this was doable. At the very beginning, the companies were almost uniformly saying that if you want to organize the joint ventures, you've got to go talk to management there and follow the typical procedures under the National Labor Relations Act and first win certification elections Mm -hmm. and then uh, get an agreement that puts you under the National Master Agreement. I didn't think that was something that the companies would concede. But GM did. It's still uncertain whether or not that means that they're going to pay the same wage rate. But I believe that when they finalize the details on this and when they're released to the public, the rank and file would be dubious of any agreement that didn't put uh, the battery workers under the same wage scale Mm -hmm. or at least a path to the same scale that was clear and short. Uh, but that being said, it remains to be seen whether the other two companies will accede to this demand of mm-hmm. the union. And Stellantis just announced today a new joint venture that it was uh, launching in Indiana, a $3 billion venture. Mm-hmm. And it joins the others that they both, um, um, Ford and uh, Stellantis, have that are non union. I haven't heard the companies. Moving any on this particular position toward the union's position, but I don't think the UAW would sign a of agreement with them if they didn't.
1: I, you know, I'm I've been having a difficult time sort of wrapping my head around this uh, for some time actually, even before the strike. Wrapping my head around. What the industry thought it was going to be able to do here previously was the thinking that, well, they'd basically transition a huge portion of their own workforce from union to non-union workers as they move from gas-powered to battery-powered vehicles, and that the unions would somehow just be fine with that, wouldn't have anything to, to say about that? Why was this so well, difficult? I— I think
3: they got in the habit that has been you know that has grown over the past several decades of mm-hmm. what I would call concessionary bargaining in which the 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 approach was that unions um, depended upon management for their jobs and therefore they ought to do what they can to make management competitive and for the past several decades the I think the drivers of the wages in the auto industry for the UAW have been the foreign transplants. And now you can add to that the um, non-union EV producers such as Tesla. Huh? And what the companies were basically saying, and for us to be competitive, we've got to pay their wages, not the UAW wage. And what the UAW has come in and said is we want to flip that. We want to go back to what it was before in the 50s and 60s, in which the UAW set the pattern for the industry as Uh a whole. Mm -hmm. And I think that they have taken a major step toward that. But um, I would imagine that there is a great deal of pressure from investors and others on the part of the um, two companies that haven't agreed to it yet to not agree to this. Mm. But whether they are successful or not, I don't know. But as I said, I don't think that the UAW would sign a tentative agreement uh, with the other two companies without a similar promise.
1: It certainly seems like that. And beyond that, uh, Harold Meyerson argues over at The Prospect this week that the UAW can now take their win on batteries and living standards uh, for union workers at, at GM as a selling point to the workers at shops like Tesla and all of the non union EV factories springing up in the South, and that President Biden can cite the breakthrough uh, on the batteries with GM. Uh, as a concrete refutation of Donald Trump's harangues, that the shift to EVs somehow foretells the doom of American workers. Does Meyerson have that right? Will will winds like this now spread to automakers and plants that are non-union like Tesla even? Uh, well, will- I
3: think I think that um, the union, the UAW certainly has that intent and wants to um, compensate for what I think it considers the union's past failures in successfully organizing these types of um, non-union firms. Uh So they view an agreement that they can tout as an example exemplary agreement that they can take to the workers at this site and say, look, we were able to substantially raise wages. We were able to Provide certain other things that um, you should benefit from if you were to join us. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to minimize the opposition that they're going to face from the companies. One thing I've learned about companies that operate in the US, including those that are foreign owned, is that they make a calculation when they come here uh, about how they can operate non union and stay that way. Mm. And Elon Musk is pretty open about his hostility towards the UAW mm-hmm. and saying, you know, inviting them, basically challenging them, saying, try and organize it if you want to have any luck at it. But, uh, you know, he's going to fight them. And I think all the companies are.
1: Let's talk about the uh, the three-part strategy that you cite in your piece at the conversation as being key to giving Fain and, and his leadership team at UAW the upper hand so far in negotiations and how these uh, similar tactics might be useful for labor leaders in other industries. You cite... Um, The union's emphasis on substance, processes affecting interpersonal relationships, and the setup or the context in each of the parts of this three-part strategy. I want to sort of walk through quickly through each of the three steps that you cite as being successful, at least to date, beginning with the way that the UAW publicly framed their message at the beginning of the talks.
3: Yes. um, I, I think that you look at it from the perspective, and this is a model developed from the Harvard Program on Negotiation, about the three dimensions of negotiations, that you can exert some influence over as one of the parties, the UAW being one of those parties. And substantively, what they've done is to dominate what the issues were in the negotiation. And the issues were wage increases, and pay equity,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and everything fell under that and around that, including the um, unionization, in effect, of the joint ventures with the companies that produce batteries. Mm-hmm. And from that, they took that and then moved to the next two phases um, of the uh, process, which fo- on, focused on process and from the very beginning, they dev- devised an unconventional approach. They really shocked everybody in the Detroit area, in which they were going to forego the ritual handshake, which I always thought was kind of dumb, to be honest with you, <laughs> uh, in which they'd go to the companies, and they'd get everybody together, and the company would be in their suits, and they would be in their, their shirts of various colors. Uh-huh. Their, T-shirt, their um, sport shirts, and they and they'd shake hands and smile and do all that kind of stuff, um, and then bargain and maybe strike or not strike. Mm-hmm. This time they said we're going to have meet and greet with our workers at plants at each one of the companies, and forego this. And everybody thought, well, they're they're sticking their middle finger at them. And I don't think they were trying to do that. I was saying, I think they were just simply saying, look, we're operating on the basis of the members' interests, and the days of cozy relationships with management is over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so take this as a signal to that. And Sean Fain, I to his credit, has been above board and honest about. He was going to use an unconventional approach, a new strategy, mm-hmm. and that he was going to depart from the past. And he has done that, which brings to the third thing that he's I, done very well.
1: Actually, before you get to that third thing, sure. let me ask you about the, the second one here. And and as you describe it, literally changing the bargaining process. How important is the decision to strike against all three companies at the same time and the progressive rollout of more and more work stoppages at different plants around the country? What sort of leverage does that give them that they have not had uh, in the past as they've you know struck one uh, company at a time, for example?
3: It did two things. By treating them simultaneously and asymmetrically at the same time, mm-hmm. what it did is that, it, number one, it forced them to compete against each other and so the companies were hesitant to come forward with offers because they wanted to see what the other ones were doing, mm-hmm. and um, that uh, has that competition between them has continued as they want to avoid a strike being taken against them
2: mm-hmm. in
3: the waves. And the waves also forced each of them to bargain against itself. When they are negotiating. So, what it did was basically Sean Fain would announce on a Wednesday he's going to hold a, a conference on Friday at some time and announce the first, second, third wave of strikes. Last week was supposed to be the fourth wave, which he forewent because of the concessions by GM. Mm-hmm. But before each of those, the companies have made concessions. And what he does is he pockets those concessions and says, well, I'm not going to make any counter concessions on anything, but I'm going to wait for next week until you make some more concessions. <laughs> uh, and so he takes them and pockets them and, you know, put the companies in a vulnerable position. Now, that's worked so far. Um, but I, everybody, when they come into a negotiation, if they have any sense, and I know these companies do because mm-hmm. they've done this for so many years, is that they have what we call resistance points, that is their bottom line, beyond which they're not going to cross. And they may be getting close to their bottom line, Mm. which says beyond that we're not going to give anymore. And they're still apart on some issues, depending upon how hard the union wants to push them. I'm not certain, for example, that Ford and Stellantis will, uh, without a huge fight, concede on the joint venture, EV, being union. Mm -hmm. And I'm not certain they'll concede. I don't think, I know they won't concede. I'd be amazed at this, um, if they concede in granting a defined benefit pension plan or if they restored retiree health care or granted a two-hour work week.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: But they've gotten a lot of the other things that they wanted, and I think they could come further on wages. Uh, The companies can, probably would, come further on that. But if the, the unions insisted on those things, um, all those things, then I think we're very far from having an agreement.
1: The uh, third part of the strategy that you cite, a uh, strategy by the UAW in their strike here, is the the use of social media. Is uh, w- What are they doing on social media that we haven't seen uh, in the past or that we have seen work successfully in the past?
3: Well, let's look at the results of that to provide you uh, what's happened, because they've dominated – Uh, In taking the initiative, they have the first move advantage in this situation, which is critical, that they have dominated the airwaves, so to speak, social and and traditional media, Mm -hmm. and they've got public opinion support behind them. Some polls indicate that as many as 78 percent of the public support them, at least to some extent. And then you've also got the fact that the president of the United States visited them uh and on a picket line which mm-hmm. was a historic development and he's lined up his administration behind them and publicly endorsed their cause um uh, which doesn't mean that it's going to make it necessarily any easier for them to get it but it certainly aligns forces and stars so to speak with them and in that environment they're exporting it to the maximum advantage and uh That helps give their membership confidence to prolong the strike as long as necessary to get what they want.
1: Is 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 there any evidence that I mean, was it this use of social media that was uh, successful in getting Joe Biden to join the picket line or is it, you know, Is it anything, in fact, that the unions did versus the fact that it's Joe Biden in the White House versus, say, Donald Trump, whose administration and and his own actions have been decidedly anti-union? Was was it just lucky that uh, Joe Biden happened to be there at this time?
3: Well, I think they exploited the fact that, as they should, Mm -hmm. that Joe Biden was there and he's claimed that he's the most pro-union president. And also, you know, they they withheld their endorsement from Biden because they didn't think that he was moving strongly enough towards a fair and just transition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they're not hesitant to, you know, play their cards as they however they might want, call the shots however they might want but they realize what the reality is if it's a redo of Biden Trump, they don't have any other place but Biden to go to, even though they have a segment of their membership that I'm certain is going to vote for Trump, no matter what
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: but um in this thing, you know whether it was Facebook or any other kind of social media, what is it advantageous is that it provides a direct way for them to communicate directly with their members, mm-hmm. and it's more than that it's the how Sean thing comes across. And that he comes across as more or less a regular guy He doesn't talk down to them. Uh, And, you know, sometimes he uses harsh and foul language, but, you know, that's the way they, auto workers, (laughs) talk. Uh, You know, this isn't Sunday school, and they're not wearing their Sunday best. And they're saying, you know, we got a cause to fight, and we intend to fight it. And if it means playing hardball... And being tough, we're going to be that way.
1: Uh, he comes across as extremely likable. He seems to me to be a fantastic face for the uh, uh, for the union. He doesn't look like a you know a, a characteristic uh, you know a, a tough guy, a thug. He seems like a normal guy. Seems like a, a a nice guy. And well, you know, yeah,
3: yeah. I was going
1: to say that I
3: think one of the things that people like about him, you know, and, the, and what they like about politicians is if they're genuine Mm -hmm. and you know he's not up there you know like uh, some companies you know the executives come and talk to them and they're sitting in a studio reading a teleprompter yeah he's not doing that now he may have a teleprompter i don't think he does but whatever he does he's crafted the message himself he's He's ad-libbing, and he's saying, look, this is how I feel about it. I'm representing you, and I'm fighting for you. And you may not like everything about me or everything I say or the way I say it, but I'm going to lay it on the line. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you this is how much we've done. And the union members appreciate that because the UAW had acquired a reputation for being very top-heavy, stultified, and, you know, the scandal that they just came out of sort of blemished its image. And they've got a, they had a lot of rebuilding and refurbishing to do. And he's helped to bring that along.
1: You uh, you already noted the. um the audacious uh demands that fane has made uh, he came out right at, at the front that's his word audacious demanding uh, roughly 46 percent wage increase restoration of annual cost of living ad- adjustments retiree health care elimination of separate wage tiers for new workers and even a four versus five day work week among other demands uh you've already suggested that they are unlikely to get all of that but You described that as the shift from a collaborative approach to negotiations by unions in recent years to a more adversarial one, and that it has sort of caught the automakers somewhat flat-footed. Why is that? How so? And uh, ultimately, do you see this now as this return to this uh, more adversarial uh, uh, position uh, as being successful in these talks?
3: Well, I think it it is uh, more successful and I think it was necessary. I think in addition to saying adversarial, you might call it unions fulfilling their institutional role, which Mm -hmm. is to be independent um, of management. And it's not a uniparty situation. It's not intended to be that way. They are expected to have different interests Mm -hmm. and champion those interests, and that's their role. And the more you submit yourself to the doctor and the management, whatever that may be, um, the the worse off you're going to be because they will take it, advantage of it and exploit it in any ways that they can for their own interests. And I think he framed it very well when he said, you know, we we've fallen behind in wages since the last contract. We've fallen 20 percent behind because of inflation. But you go back, I'll mention this one statistic that sort of puts the whole thing in perspective. In 2007, the average auto worker made about $28 an hour. Mm. Today, they make $32 an hour. Mm. That's 2007 compared to now, almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. And uh, what the UAW said is we want over a 40% increase uh, in our wages at the very beginning. That was considered audacious. Now... um, if you adjust for inflation from 2007 to now, the average hour wage of the UAW member would be over about $42 an hour.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's and not- so they weren't asking for anything out of the ordinary. And I just have to say this gratuitously. It's that... How many chief executive officers have not had a 40 percent raise since 2007?
1: Yep, you bet. And that's, uh, I think, an important point, because right out of the gate, the UAW was was talking about uh, record profits. It's something similar we saw with the. uh, uh, with the writer strike out here in Hollywood where they were talking about the CEO pay that has gone through the roof and they were sort of laid that out at the beginning so people could understand what the stakes were, and what they were asking for was not actually that outrageous after all.
3: Yes, I think it was absolutely the case. And I think that, you know, that, uh, they had retiree health care they had defined benefit plans there was a time in the not too distant past when people touted those things as one of the virtues of our capitalistic system
2: Uh right yeah
3: that you could negotiate these kinds of things through free will in collective bargaining which isn't government mandated uh, in the sense that government doesn't mandate the outcome of your contracts but now all of a sudden it's become that you know this is something that we shouldn't have ever had, the company shouldn't have ever given, and therefore we got to give them away. And the union's claiming that they just suspended them, and there are those who say, well, no, you didn't really just suspend them. You had to give them away permanently. Let that debate continue as it may. But I think what the union more broadly is calling for is let's refocus things here, and there ought to be a more... As Walter Ruther say, fair distribution or mm-hmm. uh, consideration of the equities of the stakeholders in a business, and that includes the workers, it includes the investors, and it also includes the customers.
1: Finally, uh, Merrick Masters, uh, are the uh, tax tactics that are be- being used by Fain and the UAW are they replicable? If that's a word in other industries, if if so, what should, uh, you know, unions who are considering strikes elsewhere, uh, uh, workers who are considering organizing, what should they take from what the UAW is doing here and bring into their own negotiations, demands and and work stoppages if necessary?
3: Well, there certainly are situations in which the strategy as a whole is applicable, but there are also more situations in which parts of it may be applicable. A lot depends on the financial status of the companies. Right now, these companies are relatively healthy and they have a lot of cash. Mm. Um, And also, it also depends on the replaceability of workers. These workers are not easily replaceable. And, therefore, the union is in a stronger position. If you're in a situation in which the companies are in dire straits and workers are replaceable, then you really need to think um, about what is the wisest strategy going forward. And a purely adversarial approach or one that heavily accented to that may not be in your own interest. It may be self-defeating, even though it may be tempting.
1: Mm. Well, we're seeing a lot of uh, workers tempted, it seems like, around the country all at once for the first time in in uh, quite a few years. And I think it's great to see and so far seems to be working out to the benefit of the workers. Dr. Merrick Masters is professor of business and adjunct professor of political science at Wayne State University up in Detroit. Uh, Dr. Masters, great speaking with you today. Hope you'll uh, join us again in the future.
3: Thank you for having me. Take care about. and
1: have a good day. Thank you, sir. Okay, we have got to get out.
0: Yes, but it was really nice to hear from him.
1: It was indeed. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks again to Merrick Masters. Thanks to that voice you heard. That was <laughs> Desi Doyen, our producer. And thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it and any of them that we have ever done. Going back to the beginning of time at <laughs> bradblog.com. All for free. All Thanks to those of you who donate at bradblog.com or bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and yes, Twitters, you will find me at the BradBlog. We will see you there until we see you here tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
0: to the bradcast we are 100 percent listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com donate